Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Did I? <laughs> no, you did not miss anything. Um, okay. <laughs> today I am working on finishing up the podcast for this week, and I am feeling like from now on, people would probably appreciate it if we actually gave a health update for you. So, yeah, I, th- I think the last update we gave people was. Um, just letting them know that Camino, right? When my esophagus died? Yes. Yeah, so what's changed? It's been three months. So I had the surgery on my throat Mm -hmm. and it didn't work, but nobody really thought it was going to work. Yeah. Um, So my eyes are terrible and I'll the tear ducts that were cauterized have ripped open. Oh, no. I don't think I knew that was even possible. Yeah, I didn't either. She, so, um, I need to have that redone. So she's going to do all four tear ducts this time. Okay. Which is the drained tear ducts, not where your tears come from. Yeah. Yep. And the the purpose of that is to keep water in your eyes because you can't blink super well. And if your eyes get too dried out, you will actually, like, lose your sight. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, there can be retina issues. Mm-hmm. And then pain management is just worse. And I'm just waiting for one more appointment with this new neurologist before I meet with the pain person to make sure that you know, the other stuff is the right stuff she wants me on. Mm-hmm. And then I had two kidney stones that I gave birth to in August. <laughs> yeah, so you switched neurologists. Have you met with the nutritionist yet? No. Okay. No, in fact, I was going to call them today. You did? So I'm mainly drinking protein drinks and protein cereal that just crumbles in your mouth. Gotcha. I cheat every now and then, but I pay the price for cheating. Do you feel like you'll ever get to the place where you want to try something, so you'll chew it up, but then you just carry a spittoon around everywhere and you just, like, spit it back out? You know, you're a sick, sick person (laughs) for saying that. But when I first found out about need celiac mm-hmm. which means no gluten mm-hmm. i used to do th- this is like 37 years ago this is way before they had any gluten mm-hmm. anything donuts bread blah 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 mm-hmm. i would chew up like a piece of pizza and then spit it out and then run to the sink and rinse my mouth out you know to make sure mm-hmm. nothing was in my teeth kind mm-hmm. of deal and I think I did that with donuts also. So I did that 37 years ago. I just know that you know, it's just not worth the 15 seconds of joy to then. 
but I do make people eat things and tell me about them still. Aw. Describe the smells uh, and the flavors of what you're... Describe the texture. Like, do you do that? I do. And I... Um, you know, I just miss a lot of things. I crave salt. Mm-hmm. That's why I need to get a nutritionist because I actually need salt. I I have low salt. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's all the stuff that's going on. Welcome back to A Different Kind of Walk. Today, we are very excited to introduce you to some incredibly talented people. Pause. Sarah, I'm pretty sure I've heard Scotty pronounce your last name like eight different ways. Oh, it's Azar. Azar. Okay, there you go. So, (laughs) some very talented people. Sarah Kazar is an illustrator and a designer who works in Philadelphia. And Scotty Miser is an English teacher, writer, and comic book enthusiast also in the Philly area. And together they have a couple different books that they are working on. So we will talk about their work in a little bit. But first, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Sarah, you stole my line. I was going to say the exact same thing, but thank you. (laughs) I do have a serious question for both of you. Um, uh, What do you call a boomerang that doesn't come back? Is it a stick? It is a stick. Very good. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) I'm going to keep that one in my pocket for later. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Where did each of you grow up and what got you into the professions that you are in today? Sarah, do you? I can start. Sure. Um, I basically grew up pretty close to where I am now. I grew up in Bucks County, about an hour north of Philadelphia. I'm in Philly now. I think my profession is still a little squishy, but it's generally in like the creative side of things um but I've been drawn to creative work my whole life and I grew up drawing and painting and I basically never stopped I'm currently working as a full full-time as an in-house graphic designer for an architecture firm in Philadelphia um, but before that I've been doing all manner of creative things from graphic design and branding museum exhibition design all kinds of little side projects that don't make any money but are very important to me. Um, It's all kind of under the same umbrella of things. And I don't know, you talk to me a year from now and I'll be doing something else goofy. and (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's your story growing up? And I mean, how many kids in the family? Those kind of things. Um, I have two younger sisters. One is living in Los Angeles right now. um, And one is also here in Philly. And my parents are still in Bucks County. And me. I grew up in central PA, which I learned upon coming to the Philadelphia area. Y'all call Pennsylvania. Um, I didn't know we were being called that until I moved out. Um, And as far as careers go, I've always, always been in love with story 
and with talking to people about stories with varying uh, varying levels of consent in those conversations. Sometimes I'll just talk about stories and I don't care who's listening. Uh, ideally, someone is interested, which maybe that should be the motto above my classroom door. Ideally, someone is interested. But that, that drew me again to, I, I think, one thing that Sarah and I majorly have in common is our attraction to the weird and which has led both of us to vary and sundry of all sorts of little odd jobs and extremely odd jobs. So anyway, that's, that's what's led me to preach maybe once every six weeks or so. It's what's led me to teach uh, about literature and the arts and it's what's led me to both of these projects. In terms of sibling order, it's a bit more on shuffle than with Sarah's story. I was born the oldest, and then four years later, my sister Valerie was born. And then 14 years passed, and it was just us. And then my parents decided they wanted to adopt, and then the week the adoption papers cleared, my mother discovered she was pregnant at the age of 42. So Allison was born when I was 18. And when Allison was six months old, I gained my two younger brothers, Alex and LaShawn, who were four and six at the time. So we went from a family of four to a family of seven within a year. Uh, I think everyone's still reeling from that, honestly, but it's been about 10 years now. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, you mentioned weird. Uh, do you have a particular, do either of you have a particularly weird job? Like, what's the weirdest thing you've done in your all of your site well, projects? I need to jump in and say, when you said weird, I was a pastor for 35 years and you threw in preaching every six weeks after you said weird. So. <laughs> yeah, who would do that full time? That's <laughs> strange. Um, <laughs> uh, Sarah, I, I think you have to tell them about the jigsaws. Oh, gosh. I forgot about that. I didn't. I, <laughs> um. Yeah, I was going to say maybe the weirdest job was like working in a clock factory assembling clocks, which I found really like, I like the rhythm and the order and all that stuff. But yeah, I did find a job by way of Craigslist um, painting jigsaw puzzles that were sold at an absurd amount of money. And now that I just said that, I don't feel like I can even say what studio that was, but it was basically this like... <laughs> Uh, this guy in Kensington who's just making all kinds of things and employing art students to make among lots of different things from furniture to like beer and beekeeping and porcelain and whatever. I was in charge of painting the really expensive jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> nice. That's amazing. Sorry, I had to out you, Sarah. Um, I, I forgot about that totally until you just said that. <laughs> okay, so Sarah, out Scotty now. What's his weirdest job? My goodness. I don't know. 
I mean, they're more weird by the fact that there's there's a common theme missing. Like I was a uh, a tally man for my grandfather who was a consulting forester. I was a camp counselor for a number of summers. I was Sarah's barista, which is which is how we met. Uh-huh. I probably the weirdest one, I mean, if you can call it a job, is that I I was also uh, in charge of co-leading our open philosophy discussion group where Sarah and myself and a number of others really got to know each other called Philosophy. Um, so that I got to, on, a, on any given week, I was doing a deep dive on topics for discussions such as profanity, nostalgia, nudity as a, as a cultural artifact. Uh, yeah, so that was pretty weird, but it was also a blast. So where did, did you do that at the coffee shop? Oh, that was at a kombucha shop, which is unfortunately no longer running, called Noble Earth. Okay. And so because of the because of the tea theme, velocity, yes. You two have a book coming out soon that includes beautiful illustrations by Sarah and writing by Scotty about endangered birds throughout the world. Um, So how did that project start and why does it matter to you? That was a very big question. (laughs) I've actually been working on this series of drawings of endangered species for more than a decade now. And it's not just birds, this particular iteration of this project has focused on flighted species. So birds and bats and insects, just to like try to bring some focus to an enormous subject. Having like reflected on this recently, I think what drew me to this entire series as a start, um, I just had a lot of things going on in my life at the time. And there's just a lot of turbulence in like my personal life, my family life, all this kind of stuff. And I think I was really drawn to like this extreme vulnerability of these species. Mm. It was just easier to like think about vulnerability in terms of like something else. And it Mm. felt like a little bit more productive and it just felt like I was learning things and kind of latching onto something. Um, And I tend to be a pretty obsessive maker. So I just... I mean, hundreds of drawings later, like this body of work has been shown in museums and galleries. Um, I turned it into a stationary line. I have collaborated with some environmental conservation organizations to like help out with some micro campaigns. Um, Some like muscle enthusiasts got them printed on a t-shirt. Oh, wow. Not good, but (laughs) whatever. Um, so this iteration is a publication and it's focused on birds and primarily, um, and flighted species. So we have bees and butterflies. Um, and I think Scotty was actually present when I got the email from my editor about this project. I think we were at, um, Noble Earth, 
And um, I approached Scotty about jumping in on like writing copy. And I was like, you know, just write some copy. (laughs) 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 It's easy, like no problem, like whatever. Um, And it turned into like so much more work than I think either of us anticipated. And I just could not be more grateful to have Scotty as like a collaborator and thought partner in this project because he's like fully emotionally invested in like the plight of the piping plovers and like all of this stuff that we're learning about. And I, it just felt so nice because these stories are really, it's pretty depressing, the state of our environment and the subject can get very heavy. And it was nice to collaborate with someone who Mm kind of operates from a position of like resilience and hope generally. So. So one thought and one question, Sarah, um, we have spoken about mental health issues uh, a number of times over the past year and a half, I guess. And I mean, to hear you talk about uh, the sense of your own feeling vulnerable and then articulating that through your artwork, I, I think it's just beautiful. Uh, that's just a thought. But my question is have you been able to travel much? Do you go? to specific sites to find some of these um, creatures that you are drawing and painting? Yes and no. I um, This has been developed over the arc of the pandemic. And mm. Travel is not in the picture then. Yeah, so a couple things got shelved. Um, one part of the project also is profiling a few citizen science projects that are you know, individuals and kind of grassroots organizations starting up to address some of these things head on. So I did have an opportunity to fly to Corpus Christi, Texas, and meet someone who is starting up um, an organization that addresses microplastics in the ocean that he just kind of, that guy, I should talk about that guy. That could be a whole other podcast. But this, <laughs> there are just so many interesting things that are happening out there, and there's so much positive energy. So I was glad that we could a couple times get out in the field. We hit Hawk Mountain Sanctuary for a weekend, um, did uh, a couple spots with Audubon. But um, I'm getting better at identifying some of these species in the wild, which is really exciting to, you know been drawing them from your computer at your desk and then you go to um, Texas and like see these like little Hawaiian stilts walking around or whatever they're doing so (laughs) it's been pretty cool. Um, Scotty how about you? I mean we just heard how you got pulled into the project but yeah why does it matter to you? I don't have much of a why I just know that I've cared about these things for a while uh, one night I was over at Sarah's actually, and a few of our other philosophy friends were there. We called them philosophies. And but she had a book of endangered birds. Or were they extinct, Sarah? Which which one am I thinking of? Extinct. And I'm a total lightweight, and I definitely had at least a cider and a half. So <laughs> I was in my feelings already. 
And then I just start flipping through this bird book and I just feel myself drawn to just like touch each of the pictures of the birds. And our friend Gaines caught me. He's like, what are you doing? Are you blessing these pictures of dead birds? It's like, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I knew it was silly, but I also knew that the emotion drawing me there was real. I think some of that older sibling hyper-responsibility wants that which is vulnerable to be cared for. And I'll echo Sarah in saying the data can often be dismal. That's been one of the big challenges of this work is that we're, we're swimming through numbers that look worse from day to day. Just, so just to give you an idea of how urgent some of these projects are and how quickly this book will be out of date. Sarah informed me one time that all of November had gone extinct, as in all the species we were planning on writing about during the month of November. Yeah, that was kind of alarming. <laughs> oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Um, but... While the data is dismal, our experience in talking with actual experts was there seems to be a lot of joy in the work. Mm-hmm. The people who are out there doing it are delighted to be doing so for the most part. They're delighted when people come and talk to you about it, uh, especially the bat specialists. Uh, mm-hmm. Burgers kind of know they have a, a special thing about them, but I've described bat specialists as like the punk rock movement of conservation. They're just so pumped. You really hit it off with the bat folks, I have to say. You like clicked <laughs> with them in a very special way. <laughs> that was that's probably some of my bias too. Is it's just like, do I really like bats or were the people who like bats just really nice to me? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's what that's what draws me to the work. Jeff, you mentioned mental health. And I had my therapist call me out on this thinking recently that apparently a depressed brain will sometimes reach towards conservation and minimizing carbon impact because that depressed brain already subconsciously believes it doesn't deserve to exist. Mm. So I had to sit on that for a while. I hadn't told Sarah that either. It all makes sense now. No. Yeah. Yes, it is crappy and so am I. But while that's the initial pool, once you start talking to the people who are in the work, you come back around to this joy amidst pain. And it's mm-hmm. it's really, really special. Uh, do you have a favorite species that you've worked on, both of you? Oh, this is terrible, but I think I like the puffins the most just because they're the cutest. But then um, I I keep thinking about like the loggerhead shrike that Scotty told this like horror story about. And I he does much deeper dive than I do. I'm doing such like visual research. And then he tells me these crazy things. I'll let you tell them about that. <laughs> so before he jumps in, I was actually going to ask you about puffins. I have gone to Iona a number of times, which is off the west coast of Scotland. And the island of Staffa is even tinier. Iona is one mile by two miles. Staffa is smaller. And the cliff there 
is a nesting area for puffins. And it was just absolutely fascinating to lay down in the grass and just look over the cliff and see these incredibly unique birds hopping around and flying out. And yeah, it was absolutely beautiful. So yeah, that sounds purely magical. I want to lay around in Scotland and gaze at the puffins. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) What was I going to ask? Oh, yes. The, you were going to tell us a creepy story, Scotty. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Enough about these cute puffins. (laughs) Oh no. Now we have to hear about bats. (laughs) No, no, I'm going to tell you about the loggerhead shrike. Um, Yes, so Sarah had drawn this very sweet illustration already of the loggerhead shrike. I mean, I think you even snuck a smirk onto the beak, like he was like smiling a little bit. It wasn't intentional. So the reason that the beak hooks in that way is that the loggerhead shrike is a tiny sparrow-sized bird, but it is a raptor. It is a bird of prey. And however, being so small, it does not have the talons necessary to properly maim something worthy of a meal. So what it does is it picks up lizards or mice or grasshoppers, lifts them up alive and skewers them on nearby thorns and barbed wire. Wow. So it's, its nickname is the Butcher Bird for this reason. And I learned this recently, Sarah, and one of its favorite snacks is a kind of poisonous grasshopper. So it will pick up the grasshopper, skewer it on a thorn, and then wait for the sun to dry out the poison. How does it do that? That's crazy. <laughs> it's thinking what? <laughs> All of a sudden, Sarah's really cute picture of the bird, like its smile looked insidious. And we had to go back and make it look scarier after that. Like there were <laughs> horns on. I was like, okay, we got to revisit. This is a whole, I didn't know about this. <laughs> and that in itself was a compromise. I was like, Sarah, could we have like a desiccated mouse like lying on the branch? She said, no, stop. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about some personal experiences that you've had, things that I know are part of your stories. So Sarah, we can have you go first. Um, You have another wonderful book of writing and illustrations and photographs, and it's called Hiker Trash, which is a collage of people's experiences through hiking the entire Appalachian Trail, including your own experience doing it. So then I guess my question is, do you feel like the trail was helpful to you? Do you feel like it changed you or was helpful? I made the decision to hike the AT quite drunkenly at a bar literally the night that my father died. It just, he died very young, um, very suddenly. And it was something that had been kind of percolating in the back of my mind for a long time. And then it just kind of turned into a life is too short kind of moment. Um, And it took a couple years to plan I think the hardest part of the trail is like all the work that's required to shut down your life for that long 
Um, but yeah, I think the trail was incredibly cathartic and I'm very grateful for that experience. And for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, a through hike, you know, top to bottom, Maine to Georgia, I think, is like typically six months around that. Yeah, anywhere from like four to six months. I was of the later. I really wanted to be out there for quite a long time. So <laughs> I was doing it for six months. So we were talking about the Camino before we really started the podcast. And you'll find a lot of people on the Camino who are walking for or because of someone they lost. That that's very common and a beautiful place to be able to talk to people and very different than the Appalachian Trail. You have to pack a lot of things in, meaning your food and everything. Your your tent, correct? I found like carrying all my stuff to be really comforting as just having everything you need on your person. But yeah, I, I did find people in all kinds of different experiences of life, like people who just graduated college and are having that existential moment of like, what is my life right now? Or people who retired or people who have lost someone. Um, I started in Georgia and the Wounded Warriors Project has a cohort that starts there. So I met a lot of people who are just back from very freshly back from war um, and trying to work through some trauma. Um, I, you know, nature is a pretty healing place. And there were also a lot of people who were just out there to like hike and whatever. But right. <laughs> I personally, because of what I was going through, really connected with people who were also really having a moment out there, I think. Ballpark percentages how much were you just completely alone working through your own thoughts versus actually like talking to people, walking with people, that kind of stuff? I was hiking with my ex who um, I actually divorced a few years after I finished the trail and I was working on the book project um, kind of in the middle of divorce. So um, and again, like I said earlier, I think it's, I compulsively work and then I, it takes me a minute to step out of it to be like, what were you thinking about? And <laughs> I did focus on trail shelters and I was obsessively drawing trail shelters. And I think there was something in like me at this point in my life, seeking shelter from like rethinking about my family and who I am and like what makes your family and your home. And I think there was a lot of things I was processing all at once. And that book is really focused on the community I found on the trail, like some friends I'm actually leaving with a friend. I, uh, I met her at mile 400 and we mm -hmm. hiked to the end at 2,200 miles. We're going to hike this trail behind me in just a couple of weeks. What is it? Uh, it's Tour de Mont Blanc. We're going to attempt the circuit, which starts, it goes France, Italy, Switzerland, back to France. Wow. I'm really out of shape, you guys. I don't know. I'm a little nervous about it. <laughs> but, um, I'm very excited to like, kind of jump into this trail with like a different mindset, too, because I think the AT was definitely like, I just got to get out of here. And this is more of like, life is good. Let's go for a hike. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. And she 
experienced me in that other mm-hmm. all throes of that state of mind. So I think it's, it's going to be nice to have that experience with somebody who knows me that well. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Scotty, it's your turn. Another part of your story has been dealing with health issues. So over the years, you've been diagnosed with a myriad of physical challenges from diabetes to celiac disease, Barrett's esophagus, as well as obsessive compulsive disorder, any of which would be difficult in itself, but altogether, uh, that sounds like it's been quite something to deal with. And yet, as Sarah mentioned, you are a person of delight and joy and creativity and hope. So I'm wondering if you can tell me some of the stories of being diagnosed and also what your journey has been in coping with those diagnoses um, emotionally and physically. Sure. So yes, I started showing symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder at age, um, I want to say like second grade, it started. Um, No one knew what it was. Um, a lot of well-meaning spiritual mentors tried to, to coach me through the intrusive thoughts um, just to provide some, some context there. OCD for me does not mean that I alphabetize my socks or fold everything really neatly. I think OCD for everyone is more about going through whatever steps necessary to achieve a sense of inner stability. So a space that looks completely messy to a neurotypical person may actually be the source of inner stability to someone with OCD. It doesn't always look like Adrian Monk. Um, Now for me, it was primarily obsessive OCD. So there weren't a lot of compulsions it was more of an obsession with, uh, with honesty and the fear of, of disappointment, um, fear of disappointing my peers, fear of disappointing God, uh, those above me in any way that I think are common in like almost every kid to some degree, but it wouldn't be normal levels of those feelings if it was called a disorder. Like if it was normal, it wouldn't be a disorder. So uh, just to give you an idea of the gauge of it, I was terrified of not brushing my teeth for the correct amount of time. Not because I wanted my teeth to be really clean, but because I wanted to make sure I was doing it right and I could be held accountable by my parents and my dentist. And eventually I brushed my teeth so much and so vigorously that I wore away at my gum line and I needed a skin graft taken from the roof of my mouth in the fifth grade. So that was happening. And, uh, you know, I don't think anyone thought to say, like, all this stuff is the same thing. Um, that, that would take um, professionals and therapy, and it wouldn't be until my freshman year of college uh, that I would first hear OCD applied to me. At age 16, I was working at a summer camp. As I said, I was a camp counselor for a while. And uh, with diabetes type one, you have no insulin. 
And so you cannot break down your sugars. So they're just floating around and that's what gives you high blood sugar. My body was not getting any energy for the food I ate. So it started eating away at its fat in order to survive. I lost about 40 pounds in a month and a half. Um, and I was starting at about like 145. And I was constantly thirsty because my body was always trying to flush out the sugars. Right. So when your lips are parched constantly and you've lost 40 pounds and you're wetting the bed at 16 years old, you start to wonder, maybe this isn't just the rigors of camp that are doing this. So that's what led to that. Celiac disease, uh, probably kind of an anticlimax, but the only reason I knew about my intolerance to gluten was that diabetes serve as a tripwire for that disease. Because when, when my body comes in contact with gluten, it stops processing the sugars. But if I've already given myself insulin, that insulin is bringing my blood sugar down. And so I would enter sugar lows that would be very hard to get out of, that would last a longer time than normal. So yes, OCD, darn near my whole life. Diabetes, age 16, celiac, age 18. Barrett's uh, was discovered while they were doing the biopsy looking for the celiac. So Barrett's esophagus, what is that? Um, well, first, let me define the term precancerous. It does not always mean that cancer will follow. It just means that cancer may follow if this is not tended to. Um, it's, and that's really what I know. It's a disease of the esophagus that symptoms include a, a lot of heartburn, um, which is also not normal in a teenager to be having a lot of heartburn, but it turns out there was something behind it. And how old are you? I am 28 going on 72. Uh, so Barrett's esophagus has medication that can help with that and control that and uh, even kind of end it from, from what I read. Where are you in that journey? Yeah. So that was super interesting. I am taking over-the-counter heartburn medication. Um, Omeprazole is the generic name. Prilosec is what you know the Larry the Cable Guy commercials from. <laughs> and I recently had a meeting uh, with my GI doctor who said they couldn't find any evidence of merits. And he said, yeah, this happens maybe like 5% of the time. You take that good American medicine for <laughs> 10 years and it kind of just solves itself. Um, I do still experience heartburn when I'm not taking the omeprazole though. So I've just been playing it safe. So how have you dealt with this? All of these things put together are a lot. They're a lot for anyone, but a young person in particular, like this is the time in your life when you have lots of other things to deal with uh, and health issues isn't primarily one of them. So yeah, how have you, how have you managed that? Primarily through medicine. I'll say that first. In terms of, a ma of managing it emotionally, yeah, I don't think, anyone's good at being 16 and so you throw in like your teen angst your unrequited love and now 
you have to inject yourself five times a day. It's, it's a lot to keep track of. I think that I'm still doing a read on what I pushed down when I was 16 because a lot of people were very worried for me. And those people, like my OCD spiritual mentors, well-meaning, did not actually know what they were talking about. And my response to that was, I think, to push people away and say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then coming into my mid to late 20s, I just had to recognize, no, I wasn't. All I was saying is, I don't want the help that you're offering. Yeah. Doesn't mean that I didn't need it, need some help. And that doesn't mean that I don't still need it now. You know, my, my wife and I just got, got married in October. And entering into that level of, of intimacy with a, with a partner, I would love to have my diseases be fully my problem and fully be hermetically sealed from her experience. But inevitably, they're not. Inevitably, I, I do need her help. So I think on this side of things, I've done a lot of learning that that, that doesn't mean I failed. I think that when you're a kid and you grow up thinking that if everything is by design, then everything should be fair if the designer is good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's bad for other people, but that's, that's abstract. That's not something I have to deal with. Then when you're diabetic and you have a perfect day of treatment, and then the next day you wake up and you're still just as diabetic as you were the day before, I think that will change your outlook on what God allows to happen in the universe. So I think, uh, I think the big effect is like, I've, maybe this makes me a bad Christian, but I've stopped trusting that it's a balanced game from the outset. Um, and that I think draws me into conservation work. Mm-hmm. I don't think that things will just be okay. If we just let them run their course. I think that the, the universe requires maintenance and for better or worse, we're the ones who've been put in charge of a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah, that was beautiful. Tell me about the Flesh Planet, which is your other project. Uh, what is it exactly? Where did the idea come from? And I know that this is a vastly different project from the Bird Book. So. Tell us. <laughs> we are all ears. <laughs> I think this has to do with Scotty and his philosophy of nudity. Oh, Jeff, it's not that kind of flesh planet. <laughs> uh, Susan, the full title, uh, working title, is Horrors of the Flesh Planet, which might give you a bit of an idea of where we were headed with it. And... You know, I thought Sarah's projects and my projects were were also very different. And on the surface level, they are. So I could look at Sarah's and be like, well, that's based on an experience. And 
mine's just based on like this fun little imagined land. And I think a month or two ago, Sarah called me out. She's like, Scotty, you've been going through your own horrors of the flesh planet for quite a while. And I was like, oh no, accidental autobiography. What's happened? <laughs> um, this was much more spontaneous. And I got to be on the, on the receiving end of Sarah's spontaneity for projects. I would just sit around and have a lot of ideas for stories in high school that I most often wouldn't do anything with. And one of them was a science fiction story. And Sarah heard my idea for it seven years later, the elevator pitch of which is that an astronaut wakes up on a planet that seems to be encompassed of a body part jungle, some strange biome where spines are trees and uh, birds have human teeth. And he doesn't know how he got there, but he knows he has to get out. Sarah heard me say some less polished version of that. And she said, I really want to draw that. And I said, I also really want you to draw that. And that was in 2018, 2019. Is that a bedtime story for children? I hope not. <laughs> I don't know what kind of kids people have these days, but I hope not. <laughs> is it going to come out more as a comic book style or is it more of a book? We plan on, on releasing this as a comic Right now, we are working on writing the best chapter one. We know how to write. Well, we've been working on it for so long, too. The story's changed a few times, which is very interesting to me personally, just like how your creative work changes while your life goes on. Um, so can I give you an idea? Yeah, come on in. <laughs> I mean, blending your lives together and what you've done, I see this astronaut ending up on Staffa laying on his stomach <laughs> watching the puffins and being happy. Just think about it. So it turns out it's all just been a dream, Scotty. That's not a cliche at all, right? No, I don't think that's been done in fiction before. No. <laughs> be the first. We'll, we'll chew on it for sure. All right. <laughs> and now for something completely different. <laughs> Cute puffins. Okay, well, I'll, I will just go ahead and end the meeting for all. I hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you so much again. Good night, everybody. Everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. You can find more information about all of Sarah's work at www.sarahkazar.com. That's www.sarahkazar.com including updates on Sarah and Scotty's soon-to-be-released book, Rare Air, Portraits of Conservation. Until next time, live well. <laughs>